from Washington, D.C., this is the Education Gadfly Show. The seven-year-old, he said, if, if Donald Trump wins, uh, he's heard that his family is moving to Long Island. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, Robert Pendicio. Hey, Mike. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm okay. You know, we've had some humidity in Washington, and that must be why I'm thinking about summer vacations humidity already. Humidity in Washington? That's redundant. It is amazing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, it, I hear it was built on a swamp. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's a bit of a myth. Uh, I don't think so. Have you been outside? Uh, well, it's built near a swamp. How about that? <laughs> Close enough for government work. All right, Robert. Well, we are going to do a segment today where we get to go deep on an issue. And, in and fact, it's going to be an issue that you, my friend, uh, just can't leave alone and uh, can't seem to stay out of trouble. All right, let's do it. What, but look, I'm with you on this. Uh, you know, For those of you who have followed Mike's work, uh, Mike has for some time now, correctly, I think, uh, been in the face of, of the Office of Civil Rights on, on disparate impact and the idea that, that children of color are disproportionately disciplined in public schools. Uh, what, why don't I let you explain what, sure. what, what you have? You have some, some technical questions yep. for the federal government. So, and, and to be clear, what OCR is doing is part of a larger push on behalf of, of many advocates uh, to try to dramatically reduce the use of, as they say, exclusionary discipline practices, right. suspensions, expulsions. Uh, and, and a lot of this stems from the concern that, that we are over-suspending and over-expelling uh, children of color. And a very real concern if it's a very real concern. And it is. Look, and, and here's what I always say, and I want to be very careful about this, is that you know, in a big country like ours, 100,000 schools, I have no doubt that there are places where children of color are being discriminated against. Uh, and the Office for Civil Rights absolutely has a charge uh, right. to root out discrimination, to, to address complaints. And so, so that is, is an appropriate role for them. There that you if, go. You know, this is very much absolutely. a legitimate concern. Oh, absolutely. If, if there is a place, uh, for example, let's say there's a high school and the complaint is that uh, you know, African-American kids are being punished more harshly than white kids for the same kinds of infractions. You know, uh, let's say the white kid gets into a fight and the teachers are like, oh, that's strange. Johnny's such a good kid. That must have just had a bad day. Right. Uh, we'll just give him a slap on the wrist. Uh, and an African-American boy gets into a fight and they get a one-week suspension. Yeah, or the example you used in a piece you wrote about this recently for National Review, a white kid pulls a fire alarm yep. uh, and, and gets a much le- more lenient penalty than if a black kid does the same thing. So, so absolutely, uh, that is an issue. But when you start to peel back the onion here, uh, what you find is that OCR I- isn't just saying we're going to root out discrimination. For example, like I described, you know, same kinds of infractions, different penalties depending on your race. They are going much further. They are mm-hmm. using so-called disparate impact theory to say we are going to look at statistics. Right. And if uh, certain racial groups are disproportionately disciplined, um, then we will take that as evidence that discrimination is happening. Now you have found and, this, and they and they say, and this is the thing, Robert, to, right. for people to understand, even if the school system has a race-neutral discipline policy and uh, is, as far as you can tell, uh, implementing it uh, in a fair way. Now, break that down for me because I haven't followed this issue as closely as as you. What does that mean, a race-neutral discipline? Yeah, policy? I mean, there's nothing in that. I mean, you can imagine way back when in, in the uh, – you know, in, in in the segregation era that you could come up with different ways of writing a discipline code that would be an explicitly racist okay. or, or, you know, biased against a certain group. But presumably that's uh, in the past. That's, you know, so, and, and then, so the second issue is, okay, you have this race neutral thing. It says, okay, for example, well, if you get into a fist fight, the penalty is X, mm-hmm. uh, but there's evidence that 
you know, even though that's the policy, the white kids are getting more lenient penalties than the black kids. But do I understand this correctly that OCR is saying, I'm making this number up, if 62% of the kids are white in the school system, then 62% of the discipline must be aimed at white kids? That, that right. And if they literally? Was, uh, literally, yes, if you take it seriously. And you would say the same for Asian kids or for, wow. you know, so so what happened, they, they announced this a few years ago. Now, last week, we have this instance where in Oklahoma City, uh, OCR was going after the district. The district agreed to settle uh, and... And what they the, the really hung the whole evidence on was the fact that in Oklahoma City, African-Americans were something like 65% more likely to be sent to in-school suspension than white students, right? right? Now, again, it is quite possible that, that that is an indicative or part of that is indicative of racial bias and discrimination and, and is, again, appropriate for OCR. But my understanding is they didn't even go in and, and do an investigation. They didn't really dig into the data. They ended up complaining about some of the data collection. And that some people on the ground say, look, what is mostly happening here is if you look at where these in-school suspensions are coming from, they're coming from a handful of high schools that are overwhelmingly African-American. Mm-hmm. There's basically no white kids in those schools. Okay. Those schools uh, you know, are very disorderly and have ended up having a situation where they end up sending a lot of kids to in-school suspensions. Now right. – I think we could agree that those schools need some help on how sure. to create a better school environment, find Sounds other like alternatives, it. get better, right? But are they violating kids' civil rights? Well, here's the question I have, and, and as is my want, I'm going to look at this through the, this through the lens of being a classroom teacher. Um, this sends a chilling message, does it not, to schools and teachers about who gets suspended. And after a very short while, suddenly you've got uh, – you're back to the bad old days yep. of a disorderly environment where nobody learns. And that's the worry. And you say, who is going to suffer under this, right? Well, I'll Because you, we have right. a mostly segregated system, Guess let's what? be honest, right? The kids who are going to school – with the African-Americans who are or are not being suspended or expelled are mostly other African-Americans or, right, right, you know, right. likewise with Latino kids or low-income kids. I mean, the point is, you know, upper-middle-class white kids uh, are generally not going to school yeah. with African-American and Latino kids, certainly children of color who are also poor. That is quite rare in this country. And so yeah. this isn't about, you know, what's going to happen to the, the children of the affluent, the powerful. This is about what's going to happen to other poor children. Sure. Are they going to be in environments that become less safe, less orderly? Uh, you know, and are we going to further demoralize teachers who are now being told, first of all, implicitly that we think you're racist. And second of all, right. uh, that if you do try to bring order to your classroom, uh, there are going to be big question marks. Over yeah, and potentially big consequences. Yeah. And right. so, you know, all of this calls, this is one of those classic issues in education, really in social policy, where it's all about human judgment, right. at nuance, context. Again, which is not to say that there's not an issue with discrimination. There's certainly evidence that uh, teachers, especially you know, white teachers, do show some racial bias yeah. in expectations, in how they look at behavior. Uh, and so, again, it is not an excuse for doing nothing. It's an excuse for doing something, but doing it thoughtfully. And well, if OCR is going to muck around in this, at the very least, they need to do it smarter. I mean, yeah. they go into Oklahoma City. They didn't at all consider, for example, whether or not it was possible that African-Americans were 65% more likely to uh, you know, break certain rules. Well, and that's something you brought up in the piece, which I thought was fascinating, and I frankly had not thought about. We are used to differentiating the effects of of poverty and other social ills when we look at things like achievement data. You're arguing we should do that when we look yeah. at discipline data. Yeah, I mean, no, nobody says that the achievement gap is entirely caused by our racist education system, right? right? A byproduct now, of it, certainly. A, a, by, a, you, you, a you, echo you, of you, it. You could claim, okay, there's institutional racism and in that in some places we spend less money on low-income and, and minority children or that teachers have these racial biases or right, that that could right. be a part of it. But the fact that the racial achievement gap shows up 
you know, before kids even enter school, it's pretty good evidence that there are other factors at play and that it is the racial achievement gap is driven in part by the class achievement gap and the fact that in this country, tragically, African-American and Latino kids are much more likely to be poor be in long-term poverty, to be in deep poverty, to be have all suffer all kinds of social challenges, uh, and that that then is conflated with the data on race, or it manifests itself. If I understand you correctly, in in behavior issues. Well, uh, the first point is that it, we definitely know it's connected to lower achievement in general, test scores and the like. Right? I don't think I'm saying anything. You know very controversial there and certainly is mostly the folks defending the system who mm-hmm. make the case that uh, hey this is mostly about uh, demographics or socio uh, you know economic issues but when it comes to discipline we suddenly say oh if there's a race gap if there's a racial disparity it must be entirely caused yeah. by school policies. Well, look, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Uh, it, could this possibly be a benign interpretation uh, that the Office of Civil Rights, in its infinite wisdom, mm-hmm. wanted to sensitize uh, K-12 education to this issue, and this is how they're doing mm-hmm. it? By dint of the fact that we're having this conversation, it's getting some attention. So is, is this one of these things where uh, you know they're really going to aggressively go after this, mm-hmm. or is this more they're just hanging a banner out there and saying, hey— Watch your backs. But maybe, and and some have argued that Rashawn Biddle has been arguing that that uh, OCR deserves credit for bringing this issue uh, more attention. Uh, maybe that's true. Uh, you know, and again, I don't mind if they want to put out guidance, technical assistance, professional development. That that's all okay. But the Oklahoma situation tells me again that you know the the, the district is admitting fault, yeah. right? Uh, and well, I, admitting faults under duress, under duress, and and in that situation again, I worry about the. Unintended consequences. Okay. Again, the fact that it has the chilling effect of telling people all over the country, telling educators, basically, you need to stop disciplining kids or else you're going to be accused of violating kids' civil rights. And look, Robert, after I wrote this piece, you know, I, I was called a bigot on Twitter. It's, mm-hmm. it's not fun being called a racist. You know, none of us want to have that. Educators don't want to have that. Uh, you know, these are such sensitive issues. And I just worry that the club of civil rights enforcement, and again, particularly looking at, just looking at these racial data without any context, without controlling for poverty, without, you know, digging in and investigating, that that is, is too much of a blunt instrument for such a, a, a difficult and sensitive and nuanced issue. Right. And that's it just by dint of this conversation where I, I tend to net out. I mean, I reserve the right to revise my thinking about this, but listening to you, I'm thinking that, look, this is the right impulse, but is just a pure examination of data. Is is that the right lens through which to view this very complicated right. issue? And are we going to look back and say, oh my God, we made some mistakes and now our schools are not as orderly as they used to be. They're not as safe as they used to be. Kids aren't learning as much as they used to be. And who loses out again it is poor and minority children who are most likely to suffer under that situation. And I think, look, this is where I want to, uh, you know, stand athwart history crying stop. <laughs> right. What, what is that thing that the road to hell is paved with again? Uh, I always forget. Precisely. All right. Thank you, Robert. That's all the time for this segment. And now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back Thank to the show. Thank you, Michael. Uh, so did, did you hear the story about a kid in Brooklyn who said that, uh, I think he was a seven-year-old, he said if, if Donald Trump wins, uh, he's heard that his family is moving to Long Island. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think he may have gotten that wrong, but <laughs> so, uh, there is there is talk. My, my son, uh, Leandro, is very nervous that we actually are going to move to Canada. And I've tried to say, uh, I don't think oh, that's we're joking. actually going to go to Canada. You've got to be careful. Because he does like his house. So. Oh, oh, that's yeah, so funny. Oh, it's amazing how this stuff just goes right on down to our kids, right? Oh, oh my, and- my sons were having a very energetic debate yesterday, wow. six-year-old and eight-year-old over which is worse, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Wow. <laughs> what did they decide? <laughs> well, they're split. They're split uh, on they? the uh, on the subject. I love that. Is this a conversation started in school or in your own uh, home? Oh, in our own home. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the great In our own home. All right. Yeah. Now you know how uh, what's going on in the Petrilli household. What is going on in education research, Amber? Well, we have a new study out by Seth Gershenson that examines how accountability pressure, the pressure associated with NCLB, yes, we're back doing NCLB studies, hmm. is linked to teacher attendance okay mm-hmm. so he used data from north carolina our one of our favorite data loving mm-hmm. states like it's just got a great database uh for the first two years of nclb okay so he's studying nclb in north carolina for the first two years of implementation and the treatment is failing to make ayp in the first year of nclb which then turns on we all remember this then turns on the threat of sanctions for failing to make AYP in two consecutive years right, right? so now you've got you know that you fail AYP and the effect of that and, on teacher attendance right, and on teacher attendance mm-hmm. exactly. they're all off out of the building looking for other jobs no uh, he compares title 1 schools that failed to make AYP in 2003 okay. first year to title 1 schools that made AYP in 2003 okay operating under the idea that those who didn't make it would be again under greater Pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he looked at the trends in those two groups of schools before and after NCLB took effect. Hmm. All right. That's, I could go on about the methods, mm-hmm. but that's the gist. Get it. Uh, on average, failing to make AYP in the initial year of NCLB decreased annual teacher absences in the subsequent year. Decreased teacher absences. Decreased when they came to school more. absences. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. By about 10%. Decreased really, absences yeah. in the next year by 10%. Further, the likelihood of being absent 15 or more times, which apparently some teachers are absent 15 or more times. On wow. top of the time off they already get. Exactly. Oh, uh, that fell by about 30%. Wow. Okay. Right. Um, and then he goes into like how these things differ by groups and found that the effect of this accountability pressure, again, associated with failing to make AYP, mm-hmm. is concentrated in the bottom half of the effectiveness distribution particularly those in the bottom quartile, which suggests that this accountability pressure was more effective in increasing the attendance of the least effective teachers. So when you're afraid for your job, you show up. Which is so odd, and I don't know if Seth's listening or not, but I was scrambling because I was looking at the working paper and the published paper, and the working paper, he had the exact opposite thing, that it had more impact on the high-performing teachers. And then the published paper ended up saying, Lisa, I'm like, "Ah, I got to email him and see Mm -hmm. what happened here. But the published paper says more of an impact on the least effective teachers. And I should say, Seth uh, is one of our emerging uh, education, education policy, policy scholars. scholars. Uh, yes. at, uh, he's at AU, right? American he University? He is. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to forget that. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so sorry, I forgot that wrong, Seth. Yes. Look, this. You, so first of all, this is interesting. There's a growing body of evidence. Matt Barnum at the 74 mm-hmm. made this case mm-hmm. that, that, lo and behold, no child left behind worked. Now, that doesn't mean that it was perfect or we didn't have plenty of unintended side effects. And there were, well, and and that there's also studies on achievement that at least in the very early years of No Child Left Behind, you got this big achievement bump. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, and it it didn't go back down, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of hit this bump and now it has plateaued. 
Uh, but there was that bump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it strikes me. I mean, we have this situation in education, it seems to me, that, you know, we have these big reforms. They become very unpopular very quickly. Yes. There's early evidence that they're not working. And we abandon them. And then later we find out, oh, you know what? They worked. So it's 2016 and this data were what from 2002? I mean, we we just have 14 years. Because put in the category. So no child left behind to some degree. Smaller schools, schools at least in New York City Mm -hmm. to some degree, right? Even charter schools in the early years, the performance data was was not super promising. It's gotten a lot better. Now that may be because of policy change and other things, right? Maybe this is going to be how the Common Core thing plays out. Almost certainly. I mean, you've certainly, the popularity is is low and uh, and you've got some people like Tom Loveless making the case that maybe we've already seen right. whatever gains we're right. going to get from this thing. But who knows? Maybe the lesson here is, look, we just have to be careful not to make uh, conclusions too early. Yeah. Right. Uh, and again, not that that's easy because if you're a policymaker or a practitioner, you know, you're living in the real world and you yeah. don't have a ton of yeah. time. And then there's the real world effect of, hey, my kid's in fourth grade now yes. and I need need help, need a fix right now. Right. But, and uh, what do you do about like, this is retroactive right. analysis, right? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, uh, we can't go back and hit the redo button, no. you know? So I don't know. I'm with yeah. you. I get the patience part, but yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. it's really, really difficult to say, okay, oh, by the way, we messed up. Maybe mm-hmm. it did have some positive effects, but now we can't learn from it, right? Can we mm-hmm. say, okay, what had this bump on teacher attendance? What policy is similar to that that we yeah. might mimic? Well, it, no, sure right? you can. I mean, there's some general applicability here, right? If if a teacher or school fears sanctions, they they show up, mm-hmm. they they get their mm-hmm. act together. So, right. so it doesn't have to be in CLB. In yeah, particular. policy is very very good at at uh, creating a response. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know we we have to be savvier about anticipating those responses, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's exactly you know earth shattering news mm-hmm. that if you pull this lever, something happens over there. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe we would say, what what would be a school level policy that might mimic this, where we didn't have to have this big federal NCLB thing where we say mm-hmm. teachers who call who, who don't miss more than 10 times get a what $50 bonus a month or whatever this showed that the stick worked yeah, yeah. I mean look I, I've been <laughs> that's right well I, I mean I would say I put this in more negative terms I mean I'm as you know I'm very nervous about some of the discipline reforms that are being pushed today mm-hmm. to make it a lot harder to suspend kids again they're, they're I understand the impulse and and there's certainly places where that suspensions and expulsions have gone overboard, but you can imagine that if, for example, you are threatening schools with sanctions, if their uh, suspension rates are too high, you can predict that schools will respond. They're not going to just ignore this. Right. Right. so, and, so might reading and math scores, but exactly. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah no, you're right. It, it's just that policy is such a crude lever. Yeah. Uh, and it comes a crude lever and a slow acting lever. Uh, well, in some ways. I mean, these teachers responded so, right away. The first yes, but they showed up to school. But we're more. not sitting here talking about education right. reform because we're trying to get people to show up at 8 o'clock in right. the morning. We're trying to improve educational outcomes. So right. it's, right. it's yes. part that three, pieces. at least. Yes. First right. they show up, then they improve instruction, right. then things get right. better. It's all yeah. linked. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Amber. Fascinating stuff. It and uh, hey, love it that there is more and more research for us to talk yes. about. And it's and not just that there's a null finding anymore. Right. And shout out to the 74 because uh, I think Matt's really servicing some studies that, you know, aren't aren't always on our radar screen. But I mean, by the way, why do our EEPs not send me their stuff? I say this all the time. Seth should have just sent me the study. They don't write. They don't call. They leave home. They're ungrateful. Anywho. But we stumble upon it somehow, Mm -hmm. some way. All right. That's all the time we got for this week. Until next week. I'm Robert Pundicio. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. 
The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. For more information, find us online at edexcellence.net.